Support for the Lincoln Project podcast comes from Odoo. If you feel like you're wasting time and money with your current business software, or just want to know what you could be missing, then you need to join the millions of other users who've switched to Odoo. Odoo is the affordable, all-in-one management software with a library of fully integrated business applications that help you get more done in less time for a fraction of the price. To learn more, visit odoo.com Lincoln. That's O-D-O-O dot com slash Lincoln. Odoo, modern management made simple. Welcome back to The Lincoln Project. I'm your host, Reed Galen. Today, I'm joined by Michigan Secretary of State Jocelyn Benson, who's been in office since 2019, the first Democrat to do so since 1995. Prior to that, Secretary Benson was Dean of Wayne State University Law School, co-founder of Military Spouses of Michigan, and is author of the book, State Secretaries of State, Guardians of the Democratic Process. Secretary Benson, thanks for joining me today. Thanks for having me. Great to be here. So, Secretary Benson, today we're going to talk about the issue of voting rights and the barrage of threats against those rights in the state of Michigan, but also elsewhere, as well as how we see the political landscape in general, both the present and the future. But first, I want to talk about the importance of preserving democracy. So let's get into that. So here we are. We're recording this on Monday afternoon. And Secretary Benson, earlier this morning, you tweeted a statement that I wanted to share with our listeners. It says, quote, if there is no accountability, if there are no consequences for those leading and facilitating efforts to undo democracy and thwart the will of the people up to and including the tragedy of January 6th, then there's nothing to stop it from happening again or escalating in the future. Now, obviously, Secretary Benson, you and I spoke a fair bit last year during 2020, and this is what you know our mission, the Lincoln Project's mission and the pro-democracy coalition is all about. So as someone who is not only an elected official, but also someone who has stood for office as a politician, when you saw January 6th in that moment, and now you've seen things progress, what did that moment open up for you? And tell us a little bit more about your belief in accountability, which certainly we share as well. I think you know the entire post-election era in that sort of 60, 70 days in between when the polls closed and we got to January, including in January 6th, was rife with daily multifaceted, multi-tiered attempts to, as I also recently referred to, use every lever that was possible to use to try to undo democracy and thwart the will of the people. And we saw that going through the courts. We saw potentially the use of law enforcement. We saw certainly the misuse of legislators and legislative hearings, all kind of set to physical protests outside my home and others and outside areas where close to election day, people were tabulating ballots, efforts to actually stop the counting of valid votes, and then later on undo the very valid and accurate results, all culminating in January 6th. And so what unfolded, as I lived it certainly, was not something I had fully anticipated, even though I would think I anticipated everything up to that point in terms of what would be done to make democracy challenging last year. What happened was, you know, it was a daily surprise of how far, how low people would stoop to try to block the results of a legitimate election from coming to fruition. And then, of course, it escalated in the tragic day of January 6th. And the one thing I knew on January 7th was that I was done assuming that this was temporary, that this was a moment. I knew that this was 
a multi-year political strategy that had really just only begun. And the only way we stop it from happening again is by having consequences for those who try to block the will of the people in a attempted coup. And as we learn more details about that, and we will, I'm sure, even more in the months ahead, we've got to be serious as a country about making sure it doesn't happen again. And the only way we do that is by communicating that there are real consequences for doing that, which we haven't done yet, really. There haven't even been real political consequences, really, for those who on the political side were involved in this effort. And so, yeah, until there are those legal political consequences, we can't be naive in assuming that it won't happen again or get worse. Well, you know, one of my biggest concerns on the accountability front is that the only people who will ever be held to account legally for this are the individuals who stormed the Capitol. And they should be, don't get me wrong. But much like we see when any big corporation, big organization, whatever, right, they're never afraid to take on little guys, right? They're easy pickings. But when it comes to the bosses, when it comes to the planners, when it comes to the people who either aided and abetted actively or were complicit in it, there doesn't seem to be any real threat from them. And for all of these things, I think you've seen even through the Trump presidency, there has been no sanction politically, financially, economically, legally, for any of these folks. And so my fear, Madam Secretary, is that so much of this stuff now becomes mainstream, that rather than this being a shock to the system, like I think it was for you, and it certainly was for me, that it's now like, okay, yeah, just one more bad day. I mean, it's not surprising to me when we have the likes of Republican members of the House and Senate saying we have to move forward, we have to move forward, because that's in their best interest politically. But when you have someone like a Condoleezza Rice for whom democracy building was supposed to be a cornerstone saying we should just move on, it certainly made me scratch my head and worry that there are people who otherwise were dedicated to the Constitution who now have just said, eh, just let it go. And I think that that's one of those things that is just entirely dangerous. You know, there's that old trope. A coup that goes unaccounted for is just a training exercise. And I think to your point, we start to see that, you know, there's threats of violence and we see this not only against you, we've experienced it. Now we are in the very real position of seeing it occur with school board members, right, who are being threatened personally. Their children are being threatened. They're being driven off school boards because they're afraid for their safety. I mean, we're just in this very unusual period. And so as someone who sits in an office, a very pivotal office in a pivotal state, how do you get up every morning and say, I'm not going to be cowed by this? I'm not going to be threatened by these people. I'm going to get up and I'm going to go to work every day. Well, because that's what democracy requires all of us and is required of all of us throughout our history. And, you know, I think to your previous point of Condoleezza Rice, who have been saying we need to move on or move past this. We certainly all would love to move back to a time where, where everyone respected the norms of democracy, the guardrails that kept the system going and that respect of who we are as a nation superseding any particular political strategy. But now we're in a moment where the political strategy has overcome those guardrails and it has now taken over the, as we saw in the reaction to the California recall and an attempt to claim fraud and irregularities before the election was even over. This is now a political strategy that's unfolding that threatens to overcome our entire country and undo democracy for good and threaten everything we stand for as a country. And so what gets me up in the morning is knowing that in moments like these throughout our history, the only answer is to do the work to protect democracy. And I feel very fortunate to have built a career around doing that coming out of the 2000 election. 
where I was appalled at the way in which that outcome proceeded and dedicated my career to just protect and defend democracy and now feeling like I can make a contribution there that I want to. This is the work I indeed signed up for when I ran for this office. But I think the other side of it, it's the work that's required of all of us. If we're going to have a democracy, it's not just going to survive by the fact that it was created centuries ago. It's only survived in our country thus far because people have been willing to fight for it and to stand on a bridge in Selma, Alabama and face down violence just to ensure everyone could have the right to vote. So I connect with that history and realize that we're living out the next you know, evolution of that history in response to this treacherous political strategy that we're seeing today. So you mentioned right before we started recording that you were in Detroit earlier today speaking with activists and voters because there are local elections coming up next week in Detroit and several other cities in Michigan. What are you finding those folks are saying and what are you finding that is really engaging with those people to make sure in local elections and an off year, which are typically, as you know, as Secretary of State, better than anyone, pretty poorly attended, and that's probably being generous. What have you found is firing up those folks to make sure that they stay involved, to make sure that they get their friends and family involved, if nothing else, just to make sure that they get out and vote and make their voices heard? I think you don't hear about this a lot because you hear about the data saying, oh, people are losing faith in democracy and that sort of thing. But in talking to people in Detroit, yes, there is a sense of apathy that has ebbed and flowed over the years, but has always been there and that is still there. People are trying to connect the vote to actually whether or not it can improve their lives. And so that still is there. How is my voting going to improve my life? And really talking through that. There's a lot of still misinformation and efforts to misinform the public about their right to vote. A lot of people who are ex-offenders who believe they don't have the right to vote, even though they do. So there's a lot of voter education that needs to be done. But what also I've noticed is that there's a very clear-eyed recognition among many, particularly those who've been paying close attention over the past year, that there is a very clear plan afoot to try to block people's voices from being heard and make it harder for people to vote. And there's a reaction brewing that is rejecting that quite strongly and in some ways beginning to energize people. And I think and hope that this grows to be more serious about staying engaged and informed because they don't want their vote to be taken away. It's like, you don't know how much you appreciate something until it gets taken away. And you see that reaction now happening in some parts of the city and elsewhere as people realize that there is a very clear plan afoot to make it more difficult for citizens to vote particularly communities of color, and it's growing. And as a result, the determination to vote seems to be growing, although we'll see how it plays out in the years ahead. I think that's a good segue into talking about voting rights, right, and the ability of all eligible citizens to be able to participate. Whether or not they will, as you said, is a much different thing. But as the chief elections officer of Michigan, there are bright line cases, I think, in places like Texas, which is now the 50th most difficult place to cast a ballot in a place like Florida, where they're making it more difficult to participate, where even after a 2018 ballot measure that re-enfranchised nonviolent offenders, you know, Governor Ron DeSantis and the legislature basically put a poll tax in place to ensure that those people couldn't participate. Sitting in your perch as Secretary of State, what worries you both in Michigan from that perspective? And how do we convince people that regardless of what barricades people try and throw up, you know, if it's a long line, weird hours, whatever it is, how do we convince people that taking that time, that one day, that Tuesday in November is key to everything else? And how do we push back on some of these voting rights things? Because clearly, let me just say this as a former Republican, Republicans have abandoned the marketplace of ideas 
because it doesn't matter to them anymore. Once the sole goal of being in politics is to attain and retain power, then whatever your message is, is fungible. It doesn't matter anymore. So how do we convince people who, to your point, might be low propensity voters, might be mid propensity voters, might be apathetic? How do we make sure that we help them overcome that apathy in the face of rules and regulations being put down to make it intentionally more difficult to participate? Well, it's interesting. When I took office, we identified the 100 precincts, 100 neighborhoods in Michigan that had the lowest number of participating voters, even in high turnout elections like November 2008, which up until last year was the highest turnout. And there were still parts of Detroit, still parts of Flint, still rural areas throughout the state where people were participating in very low numbers, oftentimes under 25% turnout, even in high turnout elections. And so my answer was, you know, I believe very much that government should meet people where they are. That instead of saying, you come to us and then we'll serve you, come to us and we'll tell you where you can come to vote. We need to go to where the people are and bring democracy to them. It's the same philosophy behind enabling people to vote from home. But that said, so I went to these communities and some of them were rural Republican communities, but you know, of the 140 are in Detroit and 20 are in Flint and had these conversations. And we found two things. I went into these conversations thinking people were going to say exactly what you're talking about, but they're going to say, my vote doesn't matter. It's not worth it to me. And what, you know, why are you here? And what we found was quite remarkable. There was some of that, but 80% of the questions in conversation were about confusion and fear about voting. I don't know enough to vote. What if I can't read? I don't know who the candidates are. No candidates even come here. It was disconnect of information and a disconnect of sort of understanding of the procedures of how to vote. You know, how do I get to my precinct? You know, it takes three buses. How do I register to vote even? Do I need an ID to vote? And so there's a lot of misinformation about the mechanics of voting that are in some ways the greatest deterrent and that I have found in these conversations, which I think the answer is having these conversations. The answer is going to communities, having these conversations, doing the long-term work, not just organizing or doing voter education in a month or two months prior to an election, but every month having a strategy to inform and engage citizens about their rights, their power, and the impact of that power. But again, what I've found in these conversations, again, this is just anecdotally, is that there's an awareness of that power, but there's a lack of confidence in how to exercise it effectively. And that oftentimes deters people from ultimately participating. I think that's right. And first of all, I live here in Utah, which is a very conservative state, as you know, and we're an all-male state. You can drop your ballot off at a drop box, but, you know, I just voted my ballot last week, dropped stamp on it, put it back in the mail. You know, I live in a relatively small county. I think there's 50,000 people in the county. But no one here worries about, well, well, we can't let people vote at home because there's, quote unquote, you know, some sort of vote rigging, right? I believe Oregon is the same. I think California now has mail ballots to everybody in the state. So this is one of those things where both red and blue states, to make it crass and simplistic, have gone out of their way to make more people able to vote to participate more easily. But Unfortunately, I don't think Republicans want that now. I don't believe that Republicans can win high turnout elections. Therefore, my gut says they have to drive down turnout as far as they can with everybody, because that means that probably more of their people will squeak out a win than win in a landslide, if that makes sense. So I would say two things just based on pure data, right? Certainly, that's the conventional wisdom to a certain extent. But look at 2020 where we had the highest turnout election in Michigan. 5.5 million people voted. And there was just as many new voters 
on the quote unquote right side of the aisle as there were on the left side of the, the aisle. And so at least in 2020 and in many other years, you know, sometimes that could be the case and that you have low propensity voters, particularly in urban areas and poor voters. And those sometimes overlap with large D Democrat interests and candidates. But that's not what we saw in 2020. We saw high turnout across the board on both sides of the aisle, which in my view is a good thing because I'm a process person and I believe in building a process that then generates the best result. And so that's why to me, 2020 was a success because you didn't have certain parts of our state, for example, where people voted less than others, although certainly in Detroit, the turnout was diminished. And so, you know, that's one thing. But the second thing, and I think this gets more to the question of what does high turnout mean in the future? There is no question that our country is becoming increasingly diverse and that our younger generation is the most diverse and progressive in history. And so that's real too. And that is, I think, more where the target is. How do you deter young people? How do you deter communities of color from participating? Because oftentimes their values do align and have historically aligned more with the Democratic Party than the Republican Party. I always say I'm a Democrat because we're the party of the Voting Rights Act. We're the party that lost political power to do the right thing and enfranchise citizens all across the South. So to me, I think high turnout in general in 2020 certainly showed benefits both parties. Voting by mail certainly benefits both parties. And you've seen that in various places like Utah and others. But to me, it's more about race and racism and structural racism and fighting that and which party is fighting that and then are going to get more multiracial voters as a result. Well, I think we're also seeing that there's an upcoming election next week in Virginia. And you've seen that the Republican candidate for governor there and Republicans across that state in their political communications have been using barely coded language of anti-Semitism. You know, when Glenn Youngkin says CRT, he's not worried about some curriculum. He is saying suburban white people be afraid of black people. When they say defund the police, the same thing. Mm-hmm. And that's you know been a part of our political history in various different terrible ways since the inception of our democracy as well. And it's real. And that's why, again, the movement to stop teaching our history and teaching history or the reality of race in our schools is particularly troubling because that harms our ability of future voters to be fully informed about the country and the democracy they're inheriting. The direction our country is going, it is increasingly diverse. So we're going to see, I think, an escalation of the I guess you could say culture wars that kind of play out in a war around democracy. But, you know, it's interesting. I, at this conversation I had this morning that we were referring to, with, you know, activists in Detroit recognizing the increasing diversity of our country. One activist said, are we going to become a South Africa where there's a tyranny of the minority that blocks the voice of the majority? And I think that sense, that feeling supersedes party affiliation, although there is one party, the Republican Party, whose leaders do seem to not believe in democracy right now. But that said, we have to have the conversation through the lens also of race and the diversity of our population and how that's impacting the political strategy more than D versus R and how that's driving it. Although, of course, it's all interwoven. You said something earlier about, you know, people don't miss something unless it's taken away. Let me ask you the question another way. Do we do enough civic education? No. Are we committed enough to (laughs) civic? Well, yeah. Um, Let me ask you this. To your point, like if you're given something without ever a, having to earn it, or B, giving any you know baseline understanding of what it means, are we asking tens of millions of Americans, millions of Michiganders to do something in the context of which they have little to no experience or understanding, not because they're ignorant, right? Not because they don't want that, but because the system is now gauged to 
drive every conversation to the bottom as quickly as it can and just sort of hit that adrenal gland. And we're not providing young people, right? I mean, I took civics in middle school, right? But I grew up in Washington, D.C., so it's not the same. I was bathed in the blood of democracy. You know, we should not be worrying about critical race theory being taught in schools because it's not. We should be worried about whether or not we have civic education in schools because it's not either, but it's desperately needed for an informed populace or at least a populace that can become informed if and when they choose to. Yeah, absolutely. We're not doing a good job in our country of preparing the next generation of citizens to inherit our democracy, but through that, we're not instilling in enough citizens the sense of responsibility that comes with being an American citizen. It's also that you have a responsibility to be engaged and informed. And if we have a citizenry that's engaged and informed, then we have a robust democracy, but we don't have one without that. The responsibility of our educational system is to create that. It's all interwoven. You know, my parents are special education teachers. That's why I became ultimately a teacher myself and a, a law professor. But it was interwoven with starting my career investigating white supremacists, organizations, and hate groups and hate crimes. And so you sort of see interwoven in that also the failures of education to fully engage and prepare citizens to inherit our democracy and to carry it forward. And we have to do that work every generation. We're not doing that. We're not even having that conversation because we're so caught up in the politicization and the shock and awe of the, of the daily you know, outrage that's coming forward. And I would argue that that's strategic to keep us distracted enough in a way to disengage and then make it harder to be engaged and ultimately then be able to do things at levels of power in a way that you're not held accountable by the citizens who have become disengaged and less informed. Right. And I think that's the one thing that we've seen from recent surveys is that like Republicans don't believe we live in a legitimate democracy because, you know, so many of them have bought into the big lie of 2020, which I'm sure you have had to contend with personally and professionally for every day for the last almost year. But also, and then Democratic voters don't believe that democracy is like a problem at the moment. So we have this yawning chasm, not only of the polarization, but of the threat, which is Republicans already believe we don't live in a democracy <laughs> and Democrats don't seem to be concerned that we're about to lose it. And that's a very difficult place to start from if you're trying desperately, not only at a federal level, but as you know, at a state level, to sort of shore up, you know, all these potential breakthroughs of a, an authoritarian-ish movement. Look, you've been in Michigan long enough to know, you must know a lot of these Republicans in Lansing that you just like, what happened? Like, what happened? This wasn't who you were when I met you. Yeah. Well, there's term limits. And so usually the conversation is, hi, nice to meet you, because there's such high turnover. But yeah, there are people, you know, as an example, Senator Ed McBroom, who I did know when he became a state rep. 10 years ago, state rep for six years, and then went on to become a state senator where he is now. So I have known him for a while, and he is the state senator who led the truth-telling report investigating the 2020 election and finding that actually that it was very successful and accurate and secure. So there are, and I think around the country, there are you know people who are acting with integrity and telling the truth, and that's the real dividing factor right now. And there are a lot more people who have disappointed me, not in their buying into the lie and spreading it, although there, of course, has been that. But it's been the silence of a lot of others who know better and who should have spoken out to support, for example, their colleague Brad Raffensperger when he was under fire for refusing to find votes. Being called on by the sitting president from the Oval Office 
to find another 11,000 votes. Like, that's all we need. He didn't want, like, 15,000 votes. He didn't want 20,000 votes. He wanted literally one more vote than Joe Biden got to be changed. The ridiculousness of it would make you laugh if it wasn't so frightening that this was a guy who was literally in the interregnum between Election Day and the inaugural of Joe Biden still trying to turn this stuff over. Yeah. And I think the silence of so many on the Republican side who are out there standing with him and supporting him was really sad. And that to me was a bigger cloud on everything because that silence breeds essentially acceptance of the idea that it could be okay to ask a secretary of state to do that, which of course it's not. And so prior to 2020, and even now, I, I really value working across the aisle. I love democracy because the idea inherent in it is that you bring people together of different perspectives. And as you said before, with the marketplace of ideas, you work it out, come to a compromise. No one party has a monopoly on all the good ideas and all the solutions. But by bringing us all together, we can actually come up with the best solution for the most number of people. That's what I buy into. And so when you lose that, which is really what we've lost as a sizable portion of the political leaders have bought into a lie or furthered it in order to achieve their own political power or ascension, then we're in a danger as a country of making bad policy, which we're also starting to see play out. And the only way we change that is by voters not supporting elected officials who don't do their jobs in that way and don't support democracy and demanding that leaders on both sides of the aisle tell them the truth and protect their vote. So, Secretary Benson, before we let you get out of here, I want to ask a couple more questions. The first is, you mentioned your colleagues, your fellow secretaries of state across the country, and you mentioned Brad Raffensperger of Georgia. Almost assuredly, will be faced with a primary in the Republican primary there by someone who, I believe it's a retiring member of Congress, who will almost assuredly go all in on sort of Donald Trump, the big lie, Raffensperger betrayed the president, et cetera, et cetera. And then we saw that Governor Greg Abbott in Texas just announced his new secretary of state, where it's an appointed position, is someone who actually tried to take President Trump's electoral fiction into federal court. You know, if you have the opportunity to speak to those people, like, do you ever say, like, you know what your job is, right? Like, you're a Republican or whatever, but it's to be an arbiter, a fair and even arbiter of the outcome, not to put your thumb on the scale. Yeah. On one hand, as you point out, there is a three-tiered strategy right now to escalate the attacks on democracy. One is to keep spreading the big lie. And two is to pass laws, making it harder to vote off of that big lie and codify the falsehoods out there. But the third is the most pervasive, and it's a very real effort to basically put people in positions of authority at every level. We see this happening in Michigan already at our county level with replacing county canvassers who certify elections with people who have supported the big lie. You know, up to the statewide level with secretaries of state to really throw every potential avenue to put people in places of authority for future elections, particularly for 2024, who will be willing to subvert the will of the people, who will take that call from a candidate and find votes and not uphold the will of the people. The reason why the big lie keeps getting propagated is not about just 2020, it's about making it so that if and when that happens, if and when you have an election officer who willingly subverts the will of the people, refuses to certify a fair and accurate election, then, you know, this lie has been out there for so long that the people are more willing to accept election subversion because for three years they've been fed this misinformation that the elections are somehow, quote unquote, rigged, even though they're not. 
you know, it's all kind of planting the seeds to enable the overturning of an election result and to enable that overturning to be accepted by the American people. And that's where we're headed. And that's where you see 2022 is going to be about will the American people, will voters in states like Texas hold accountable a governor who will appoint a secretary of state who doesn't respect democracy? Or will they elect secretaries of state in other states who have been endorsed by a former president who tried to subvert the will of the people? That's the choice voters will have in 2022. And it remains to be seen who will turn out and who will participate and who will make sure that democracy survives. But it's going to depend on the voters to make sure that it does. And from our perspective, 2022 is the way station to 24. But, you know, one of the things that I feel ashamed that I didn't think about it sooner is that in your state of Michigan, where Governor Whitmer is running for reelection in Wisconsin, in Pennsylvania, in Georgia, in Arizona, you know, these are states that already have Republican majorities in the legislature. If they capture the governor's mansion as well, our biggest fear is that 2024 won't even be a question right? They'll do some craziness with different slates of electors and everything else. January 6th, to your point, will be, you know, past his prologue, right? We'll just be full on into a constitutional crisis, both at the federal and the state level, because someone like you will be like, this is clearly not what's supposed to happen. This is clearly not what's going on. And you all are making a decision, not by the will of the people. And remember, they always say this is what the people really want, but how somehow it always turns out that that's not what the people want. It's what they want. So how much does that concern you? Yeah, because what comes next after that? Then you have a government that you know is not really accepted as legitimate by a large sector of the population potentially and then can't govern. Before we get to that, I think these next three years are going to determine whether that happens or not and what 2024 looks like. But what I saw in 2020 was there are multiple reasons why democracy prevailed. First and foremost, good people on both sides of the aisle and places of authority did the right thing, certified the election, refused to quote unquote find votes, you know, all of that. So it held because of that. But what really, particularly in the last 20 years, enables democracy to even overcome those types of moments with bad people in positions of authority is if voters turn out in such extreme numbers to make the results of the election so unequivocal that it becomes impossible to plant a narrative that would subvert that result. And so in other words, if it's a close election, or even in the case of Michigan, where 5.5 million people voted and the results of the election were separated by 150,000, that was still considered close. So we've got to have voters speak clearly and unequivocally at the outset and become educated about how to ensure that they receive their ballots, return them on time, do everything by the book, work a little bit harder perhaps than before to make sure that you know all the, the I's are dotted and the T's are crossed and their ballots are in. That's the best insurance against post-election efforts to subvert the will. Large turnout, significant margins and all the rest. And that's the power that the American people have in their hands and that has to be communicated over the next several years that ultimately the saviors of our democracy are the voters. Well, Secretary Benson, for the folks listening out there, to your last point, what is it those individuals can do when they are so inundated with all this information, when there's so much saying it doesn't matter anyway, right? There's so much darkness on the horizon. What are the folks, the individual folks, the hundreds of thousands of people that will listen to this, if you could tell them, like, do this one thing or do these two things in the face of all this, what would that be? Sign up to be an election worker in every election. Learn the process through that and then tell people about it. I mean, the truth is on our side. 
in terms of our processes being secure, our democracy being secure, you know, the more good people we have as poll workers, election workers, and the more people voting, that's how we get through this. And so if everyone on the side of defending democracy signed up to be a poll worker, election worker in their community, encouraged others to do the same, and then you know shared their stories about actually what they experience in securing the process and making sure every valid vote is counted, that is how we counter this misinformation with the truth and the facts and the data. And then to have confidence that history teaches us that if we all step up, then we succeed. And we step up in truth and we step up with the law on our side, with the constitution on our side, with history on our side, with the majority of the American people on our side. But we got to step up and serve in this way as an election worker. You know, consider even if you want to take it a step further, applying to be an election administrator or clerk in your community, but become an active and engaged protector of the democracy infrastructure. And the more we do that, what I learned in 2020, that's how we survive. And there's really more of us on the side of democracy than there are on the other side. And we leverage that by putting more pro-democracy people on both sides of the aisle in positions of authority as election workers to protect the vote and ensure it's not subverted in the future. Well, amen to that. And to everybody out there listening, everyone's state has a secretary of state's website and elections website. Your county likely does as well. I don't think we can underestimate this. We know that there will be people who tried last time. We'll try again on Tuesday. We'll try again next year, next November, to make voting more difficult, either through intimidation, you know, causing trouble, whatever the case might be. So the more people we have out there who are serious and dedicated to making sure that every voter who can participate gets the opportunity to do so, I think we have a heck of a lot better chance of being successful and the good guys winning. Secretary Benson, before we let you get out of here, where can our listeners find you online, on social media, on Twitter, wherever it might be? On Twitter and Instagram, I'm Jocelyn Benson. And, you know, on the old-fashioned website, jocelynbenson.com or votebenson.com. You know, we love everyone's support as we work to keep doing the work and keep being there for 2024 because we're in the middle of a war around the future of our democracy, truly. And we're fighting battles every day to protect it. But the more people who sign up to join us in that work, the more we increase our chances of protecting it for generations to come. So join us, work with us, and know that if you do, we can together be successful. Secretary Jocelyn Benson, thank you. Thanks again to everyone for listening. Be sure to follow and subscribe to The Lincoln Project on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, or however you listen. Don't forget to leave a five-star review. To connect with us, follow us on Twitter at Project Lincoln. And for more information on our movement, to join our mailing list, subscribe to our newsletter, or make a contribution to our efforts, visit lincolnproject.us. Also, be sure to check out our LPTV lineup, including The Breakdown with Tara Setmayer and Rick Wilson, which airs Tuesdays and Thursdays at 8 p.m. Eastern, as well as We're Speaking with Lisa Senecal and Maya May, which airs Wednesday nights at 8 p.m. Eastern. All shows you can stream live on the Lincoln Project's YouTube, Facebook, and Twitter pages. And we'd love you to join us for our newest show, Lunch with Lincoln, which airs every Friday at noon Eastern on our YouTube channel. For the Lincoln Project, I'm Reed Galen. See you on the next episode.